Well, this morning, if you have your Bible, you have phone, device, however you read God's Word, take it out. And this morning, turn to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. We have been going through the book for a long time here now at our church on Sunday mornings. And I love this book. This is my favorite gospel because everything in this gospel, every aspect is about Jesus Christ. It is the most detailed gospel out of all four gospels. And everything in the book of Luke points to Jesus. So we've been looking at this very closely, just now getting to chapter 10. It's been almost two years now. But God has been revealing to me, anyway, things about Jesus that I did not know. And I hope that He has been doing the same for you as we've studied this great book. And so one thing I want you to see today, though, is in the book of Luke, as we get to our text, everything in the book of Luke changes today as we begin to read what we're going to read today. Because everything we've been studying in the book of Luke, we've been studying Jesus, and we've been studying about His coming to earth and being born of a virgin. Then we studied about Him calling out disciples and then teaching those disciples what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Then He goes around preaching about the kingdom of God. He goes around performing miracles and healing the sick and feeding the 5,000. And up to this point, crowds are flocking to Jesus because they want to see Jesus. They want to hear Jesus. They want to be touched by Jesus because they want to be healed or whatever they want from Him. So crowds are flocking to Him. But to Today, with one verse of Scripture, everything changes. His focus of ministry changes. Everything about His life changes with one simple verse. And if you were reading the book of Luke and you read across this verse, you would probably pass right over it and not think anything else about it. You would probably pass on to get to something better. But you need to know this verse because I believe with all my heart this is one of the most important, if not the most important verses in the Bible. And I just want to read it to you. It's just before our text in Luke 9, 51. And this is what the Bible says in verse 51. When the dra- days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, what in the world does it mean that Jesus Christ set his face to go to Jerusalem? Well, if you know anything about Jesus Christ, you know that it was Jerusalem where Jesus Christ was crucified. And that word where it says to set his face, what it means in Greek is that he literally bent down and he put his face like in a wind and he walked with nothing to distract him. It was almost like Jesus was walking through a hurricane, a hurricane force wind, and nothing would keep him from going to Jerusalem, even though everything tried to keep him from that because Satan knew if he kept him from Jerusalem, he would keep him from dying on the cross. But Jesus Christ went and he set his face that way. Even though he knew he would be betrayed, he knew that he would be flogged and beaten. He knew that he would be spat upon upon and mocked. He knew that he would feel the nails go through his hands. He knew it all, but he set his face towards Jerusalem. And that verse not only changes everything about the ministry of Jesus Christ, that one verse changes everything about your life and mine. But to understand that one verse, you have to understand the beginning of the Bible. And you have to understand God's story and ours to understand Luke 9.51. So this morning, I want to take you back to the beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3. You can turn there if you want, or you can look on the screens. But I want to read you verses out of Genesis chapter 3. And I understand that these are some of the saddest verses in all the Bible. And in fact, they are the saddest verses in the Bible. Because any other verse in the Bible that comes after this is sad because of this story. 
It's because of what happened when you and I chose sin. And I know you're thinking, well, I didn't choose sin. Adam and Eve chose sin. Yes, but if you'd have been there, you would have chose it too because that's who we are. We were fleshly and we are sinners. And I want you to see what happened to them when they chose to disobey God's Word and they chose to leave Him and to follow themselves. This is what happened. Listen. Verse 1 says, the serpent, talking about Satan, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of the trees in the garden? Verse 2. Of course we may eat for the fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, You must not eat of it or even touch it, for if you do, you will die. Verse 6. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened, and as soon as you eat it, you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful, and the fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom that it would give her, so she took some of the fruit and she ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment... Their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness, so they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord called out to the man, Where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid, because... I was naked. In these ten verses, everything about your life and everything about my life changed forever. Because with that one choice, the choice to disobey God and the choice to please our flesh or our desires, whatever we want that God says no to, we brought sin into this world. And every time we sin, it always leads to three things, three consequences. And they happen just right here in God's Word. When Adam and Eve ate the fruit that God told them not to, the first feeling they felt was guilt. How do we know they felt guilt? Because they tried to cover themselves. They tried to hide from God. They were guilty before God because they disobeyed Him. They felt guilt. But not only did they feel guilt, the Bible says there that they felt shame. If you go back and read Genesis 2 and Genesis 2.25, the Bible says they felt no shame. But now in Genesis 3, after sin, they felt shame. And not only did they feel guilty and were they shameful, but they felt another feeling that every person in this room has felt. They felt fear. Adam says himself, we heard you walking in the garden and we were afraid. Just the day before when God came walking in the garden, you know what Adam and Eve did? They ran to Him so they could walk in the cool of the day with Him and talk with Him and be with Him. But now when sin entered the world, no longer did they walk with God, no longer did they talk with God, but now they hid from God. And every person in this room has felt those three things over and over and over again. One thing I'll never forget in my life is when I was around 10 years of age, I went to my best friend's house one night to spend the night. His name was Brady Gibson. And Brady Gibson and I did everything together as we grew up. We played baseball together, football, basketball. Every sport we could play, we played. And we spent every waking moment that we could together. 
And I remember one night, about this time of year, just early in the fall, I went over to his house, and Brady Gibson had an older brother named John. He was 16. We were about 10 at this time. And John didn't like the neighbors across the street. So late one Friday night, John convinced Brady and I that it would be a good idea that if we would go across the street and egg their house. And so what John did is he went to the refrigerator and he got a big basket of eggs and he handed us the basket of eggs and he told us exactly what to do, where to throw it, how to throw it, and he stood behind us and encouraged us the whole time as we threw those eggs and lobbed them at that house. About the time we were throwing those eggs down the long street that they lived on, we saw some headlights and it turned onto the road. And when we saw the headlights, we also saw some other lights. They were flashing lights on top of the car and so we knew that we were in trouble. So we looked back to John to see what we were to do and guess what John was? He wasn't anywhere to be found. He had long gone. And so we were in the middle of the street with nowhere to hide, but it just so happened that that day was garbage day. And so there were two trash cans on the side of the street, and guess where we got? Brady and I hid in each trash can, and we put the lids on top of our heads, and we peeked out just to see if the police would drive on by. Guess what I felt like in that trash can? I felt guilt. I felt shame. And guess what else I felt? Fear that I was going to get caught by those police that were driving down the street. But guess what? Ever since that day when I have sinned, Guess what I have felt? Guilt, shame, and fear. And it would be a sad state if God left us in that condition. But even in Genesis 3, God made a way. God made a way. And you might not catch it, but in verse 9, the Bible says that God called out to Adam and Eve. He said, where are you? Now, He knew where they were, but He called out to them. Why? Because God always seeks the guilty. He seeks after you in your guilt and in your sin and in your shame. Think about what Adam and Eve had just done. They were just minutes from disobeying Him and sinning and just doing the very thing He told them not to do. But what did God do? Even in their sin, He sought after them. Because God seeks the guilty. But not only does God seek the guilty, He does something else. And it's the most beautiful thing in the Bible. And it's another verse like New 9.51 that you'll just pass by if you don't get. But listen to what the Bible says in verse 21 of Genesis 3. The Bible says this, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and He clothed them. Now remember, Adam and Eve are standing there in their nakedness, and they had sewn fig leaves together to try to cover themselves. But that wasn't good enough. So what did God do? He made skin to clothe them from an animal. Now think about what had to happen to that animal before God could make clothes of skin. That animal had to die. And that animal had to shed blood so that Adam and Eve could be covered of their shame. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us here what type of animal it was, but I would bet every penny I have that this animal was a lamb. How do I know? When John 1, when John the Baptist sees Jesus Christ, you know the first words he says to them. He says to Jesus, There is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. So here in Genesis 3.21, we see the first sacrifice. We see the first offering for sin. So that Adam and Eve's sin could be covered. And so yours and I's could be covered as well. That's why 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this. It says, the one who knew no sin, talking about Jesus, 
was made sin so that we could be clothed in the righteousness of God. God clothes and covers our shame. But He does one more thing. Not only does He seek the guilty and cover the shameful, but He protects the fearful. Another verse that we think is one of the saddest verses in the Bible, but I'm telling you, it's not the saddest verse in the Bible. It may be the best verse in the Bible. It's just two verses down from verse 21. It's verse 23. And this is the verse where God casts out, or He banishes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden. He casts them from His presence. And the reason He does it is very specific. The Word of God tells us that He does it, not because they sin. That's not what He says. He does it because He doesn't want them touching or eating of the tree of life. Why? Because the tree of life is what gives eternal life. And if Adam and Eve had stayed in the Garden of Eden and they had eaten of the tree of eternal life, the tree of life, they would have been condemned and under the judgment of God for eternity. So what did God do? He cast them out. He sent them out from the garden. He protected those who were fearful so that one day He could restore them. One day He could redeem them. One day He could call them His children, His own. And if you read the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, you will see this theme all the way through. Go to the book of Exodus, and you find God seeking out those who are guilty. The children of Israel in captivity in Egypt. And God calls them, He seeks them out, and then He provides a way for them to cover their shame. We see the first Passover lamb offered there in Exodus. And it's a way that God saves His children. And then as they go, and as they walk through the Red Sea, as He parts it and walks into the wilderness, headed toward the Promised Land, what does God do? He protects them. And He does it all the way through to point to Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And He does it so that Jesus Christ will set His face towards Jerusalem so that you and I can know that He is who He says He is and that He died our death to cleanse us of our sin and to clothe us in righteousness so that we can be restored to God. That's why Luke 9.51 is in the Bible. But There's another part of Luke 9.51 I hope you caught. Because what it says there, it says, as the day drew near for Jesus to go to heaven, for Him to ascend See, not long after this verse, Jesus would ascend to heaven. After He's crucified and after He was resurrected. In Acts chapter 1, we see the last words He says to His disciples in Acts 1.8. And then the Bible says that He was caught up into the sky. He went up to be with God forever. But Jesus did not leave this world without hope. He did not leave this world without a means to know who He is and know His Word and know the good news of Jesus Christ because He did something very specific. He left His disciples on this earth. And He filled them with the power of the Holy Spirit. And He told them to go and tell about Me. And Acts 1 is a fulfillment of our text today, Luke 10. And I want you to see what Luke 10 says. Because it's very important. Because this is the purpose of your life and mine and the purpose of this church. Listen to what the Bible says there in verse 1. The Lord now chose 72 other disciples and sent them ahead into parts and all into the pairs into all the towns and places he planned to visit. There these were his instructions to them. The harvest is great but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest and ask him to send more workers into the fields. Now go and remember that I am sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't take any money with you, nor a traveler's bag, nor an extra pair of sandals, and don't stop to greet anyone on the road. 
This is the only place in Scripture where we have it that Jesus Christ doesn't just send out the 12 apostles, but He sends out 72 other disciples. Now, nowhere in the Bible do we know these 72 disciples' names. We don't know if they were ever in leadership in the church. All we know is that they were sent by God. These were just average, ordinary Christians, just like you and me, that Jesus Christ called out, set apart, and sent them to preach the good news of Jesus Christ. But He gives them very specific instructions before He sends them out to preach the good news. And what does He tell them to do? Well, this is what He says in verse 2. The harvest is great, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest to send more workers into the fields. The specific instruction that God gives you, the specific instruction that God gives me, that He gives this church, is that we are to be a church that prays. And what are we to pray for? Very specifically, more workers. Why? Because all around this world, there is a harvest in the fields that is rotting. Why? Because there are not enough workers. If you've ever farmed, if you've ever tried to get a harvest, you know it is hard work. It is not easy. And it takes plenty of workers to reap a harvest. And God is saying He needs more workers in the fields to reap the harvest that is already there. If you know anything about the Bible, these verses are very familiar because there's a parallel passage in Matthew 9 that says the exact same thing as Luke chapter 10. But Matthew 9 is a little more specific because it tells us that Jesus Christ is going around all of Galilee and He's teaching and He's preaching and He's healing the sick. But all at once, just all of a sudden, He stops and He stops because He sees. And the Bible says He sees the crowds and He feels compassion for them because they are lost and they are helpless. He says they are like a sheep without a shepherd. And then verse 38 Jesus says the exact same words He says here in Luke chapter 10. He says, so pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest to send more workers into the fields. One thing that Jesus did there in Matthew 9, one thing He does here in Luke 10 that we never do, is that Jesus opened His eyes. Why did Jesus see the crowds? Why did Jesus see the ones who were hurting and helpless and hopeless and the disciples didn't? Were they blind and Jesus had eyesight? Of course not. They had eyesight just like Jesus. But they didn't see with spiritual eyes. They just saw with physical eyes. They just saw the person's clothes or how their hair looked or what shoes they were wearing or what car they were driving or what house they lived in. They didn't see their need. They didn't see their brokenness. They didn't see their guilt and their shame and their fear. But Jesus Christ did. And the Bible says he felt for them. The word there means that he felt deep in his gut and he was hurting and he was broken for them. But it also says he saw the crowds. He didn't see one or two or three or four. He saw the masses who were broken and who were hopeless without the hope of Jesus Christ. And every day of our life, when we go out of this place and when we live our normal life, we never see the crowds. When Jesus was living on this earth, in the cities that He was in around Galilee, there were about 200 villages. All of Israel only numbered about 3 million people. Today, in earth, right now, there are over 7 billion people that inhabit this earth. 
One thing that always perplexes me is later on when we get to the Apostle Paul and we get to see the first missionary go out to the ends of the earth and share the gospel everywhere he goes and the greatest evangelist to ever live. One of the things I often wonder is why did God place the Apostle Paul on this earth 2,000 years ago rather than today? At the time the Apostle Paul lived, there were about 250 million people on this earth. That's less than the population of the United States. The United States is only 4% of the population of the world today. There are 7 billion people on the world today. Why didn't God place the Apostle Paul in the world today to go and share the gospel of Jesus Christ, to tell everyone that Jesus Christ is Lord? i tell you why. Because God put you here, and He put me here in 2019 to do what He told us to do in Luke 10, to send us out and to pray And to share. And the one specific thing he says. Is not tell them this. Or tell them that. Not to go here. Or to go there. The one specific instruction we have. Is only to pray. But we are to pray specifically. That the Lord. Would send more workers into the field. Now, why are we to pray before we're to go? That makes no sense to me. When we pray, do we change God's heart? Do we propel Him into action? That's not what our prayers do. Our prayers never change God. Our prayers change us. And our prayers open our eyes so that we can see. They open our hearts so that we can feel the pain that they feel. We are commanded to pray. These verses in Matthew 9 and Luke 10 are some of my favorite in all the Bible. I promise that I'm a missionary at heart. And I know God has called me to pastor. But I have a desire to see the world reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I love these verses. But I want to tell you that even much as I've loved these verses, I have to admit when I read these verses, I'm overwhelmed that we cannot do what God has called us to do. Just by sheer numbers. Just think about this. I truly believe as Southern Baptists, we do a better job than anybody on this earth at missions. We give to missions and we have missionaries that go and they go all over the world to share the gospel. We are the largest evangelical denomination in America. But I want you to think about this. The International Mission Board, out of all the missionaries we send, right now on the field, we have 3,764 workers. Now I know, that sounds like a lot. Almost 4,000 people that are doing nothing but sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we fund them fully so that they can go and they don't have to ask for money. They can just go and do what God has called them to do. But listen to this. Right now on this earth, there are 3.764 billion people that have never heard the name Jesus. 3.764 billion. There are another 764 million that don't know what it means to trust Jesus Christ as Lord. They've never been evangelized. They've never heard the gospel. They don't know what Jesus did for them to save them. So that is basically roughly 4 billion people that don't have access to Jesus Christ and to His saving knowledge so that they can be restored to God. Four billion. Now, if you have a calculator big enough, go home this afternoon and divide four billion by 4,000. See what number you get. 
The missionaries that we send, if they spent every hour, every minute, every second of their day evangelizing or telling someone else about Jesus, every second, every second, every second, there's no way that they could reach that many people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in thousands of years, if you know numbers. So what are we going to do? How are we going to reach the world for the gospel of Jesus Christ? How are we going to obey them, the commands of Scripture? How, how, how? We pray. And we pray to the Lord who is in charge of the harvest to send more workers in the field. Now, when we pray, I believe with all my heart, we should pray with specificity. We should be specific in our prayers. So when I pray for the Lord to send out workers, who am I going to pray for? Am I going to pray for you? Am I going to pray for me? Guess what? That prayer hadn't worked very well. Because you're still sitting in that pew. I'm still standing in this pulpit. So where are we to pray? Where can we pray for workers to go into the fields to reap the harvest that God says is there? If we would just open our eyes, we would see. You realize that just five minutes from here, there's a campus of almost 40,000 college students. 40,000. That are not in the bondage that you and I are setting in today. They don't have houses that they have to pay for. They don't have two, three, four cars they have to pay for. Large screen TVs they have to pay for. They don't have all the things that tie us down, even if God tells us to go and we can't go because we're in bondage. They don't have all those things. And if we as a church, if we as the people would understand God's Word and obey God's Word and pray for them and pray for the workers to come from there, what would God do? i tell you what He would do. He would answer our prayers. we could have missionaries that would be sent out and propelled from Tuscaloosa to the ends of the earth. Think about it. There's not just 40,000 college students there. Think about all the nations that are represented on that campus. Think about the nations that were in this church and in Northbrook Apartments just this week from China and Saudi Arabia, from Cameroon, from Bangladesh, from Ecuador, from Colombia, from Spain, from Mexico. Just that we touched this week. What if we prayed that they would go and be workers in the field and go back to wherever they come from and share the gospel of Jesus Christ? They can do what me and you cannot do. We can't even speak the language. But they can go with the gospel. And they can tell their family and their friends and their neighbors and their countrymen about Jesus Christ. And they can change the world. But we don't even pray. We go to football games and basketball games and we drive across that campus day after day after day and never do we do what the Word of God says and pray to the Lord who's in charge of the harvest to send workers into the field. Never. 
So all around Tuscaloosa County and all around Alabama and all around the world, there is a harvest in the field that is laying and rotting and dying because there are no workers, because we don't pray. Because we don't pray. We don't see. But I'll tell you who does see. And I tell you who does understand the potential of that campus just five minutes from here. And that's the serpent in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. It's Satan. And what he does to those students on that campus is maybe he doesn't bind them up in bondage that you and I are in like debt and everything else. But he puts them in other bondage. A couple of weeks ago, Jared sent me an article from AL.com. In the article, it just listed this. This was the title of the article, The Top 20 Party Schools in America. Now, the way they found the top 20 party schools in America is they did surveys from 385 college institutions in America. And they studied things like alcohol abuse and drug abuse. They studied... Sororities and fraternities. And this is what they found. They found that the University of Alabama was ranked number two out of all the party schools in the United States of America. Number two out of 385 college campuses. And we don't even pray. So when we don't work, guess who does? Satan. And the Bible says he moves and he prowls around like a roaring lion waiting for someone to devour. And five minutes from us, he's devouring our sons and our daughters. He's devouring the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ according to his word. And you say, oh, that's not true. Well, yes, it is true. Just listen to two more verses of Scripture. Listen to what Jesus Christ says just before He goes to the cross. Just listen, Matthew 24, 14. He says, and the good news about the kingdom of God will be preached throughout the whole world so that all the nations will hear it. Then the end will come. So before Jesus Christ comes back, in the last days, Jesus, the good news, will be preached to all the nations on this earth. Well, how in the world is that going to happen? The Word of God tells us in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter is preaching. And he is preaching to thousands of people. And Peter does one thing specific. He quotes the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. And this is what he says. He says, in the last day, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. Now, who is going to prophesy? Your sons and your daughters. Now what does it mean to prophesy? It means to speak a word from God. It means to share His word about Jesus. That's what it means to prophesy. And who's going to do it? Our sons and daughters. And then the end will come. But what must happen? 
before our sons and daughters preach the good news of Jesus Christ. God's people must pray. According to his word. So this is what we're going to do. Next week out at our mission wall. There's going to be a map of the University of Alabama. And there's going to be cards there with a specific address. For you and your family or you as an individual to take. And if you take that card. Your responsibility is to pray over that address and to go to that campus and to walk around wherever we give you to pray and you are to pray specifically to the Lord of the harvest to send more workers in the field. That's what we're commanded to do. And we have an opportunity with what God has blessed us with just minutes from here To change the world with simply a prayer. Because when we pray, God moves. And when God moves, He does the impossible. He did it all through Scripture. And the Bible says He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God never changes. So if we just obey, He moves. And he moves in power. So will you pray? Will you just pray? Bow with me, Lord. We thank you for your word. And we thank you for the truth of Scripture. Lord, I pray that you would forgive us. Forgive us for our blindness. Forgive us for our disobedience. Lord, just forgive us. Would you please stir within us a heart of prayer? Through those prayers, would you change our heart? Would you give us your eyes? Would you fill us with compassion? Would you unlock our lips? Would you just do it for your glory? Lord, we just give you these moments. We just ask you to move. We ask you to move in Jesus' name. Amen.